0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been disappointed by a great expectation? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Obviously. Man, sometimes the greater the expectation, the greater the disappointment, and it's almost inevitable. Think about, uh, you can't, help but think about this when you hear Great Expectations, Charles Dickens, and um, who's read uh, Great Expectations? Maybe some of you had to read it so you didn't appreciate it, but that's another That's all right. Um, this is the story about Pip and how he has these great... Ex, he falls head over heels for this cold-hearted beauty named Stella, and he has these expectations for himself to become a gentleman so that he can get her notice and then to marry Estella. And these expectations get heightened when he is suddenly endowed with an inheritance from this anonymous benefactor. And so now he's thinking, the moon's the limit for me. Like, everything I want is going to come to being. Only to find out his benefactor is not who he thought he was. And he was tangled into this plot to get his benefactor, who's an ex-convict, uh, out of trouble with the police. And then by the end of all this, he realizes he was actually much happier in his lower class life as a blacksmith than he was chasing this high life. His expectations collapsed. And the reader is also led into a great expectation for Pip. And the reader is let down because the reader realizes, like Pip, the expectation wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And that's life, brothers and sisters. We set our hearts on things and we are let down. We, we even within Genesis, we look at this wonderful world that God makes and then We see Adam and Eve are put in this wonderful world and there's great expectations for the whole story. There's great expectations for Adam and Eve, only to find out by page three in my Bible that all of this is disappointed rather quickly. Adam and Eve do not do what God wants them to do and they lose what God's plan was for them. Uh, They choose their own way instead. And we've all had some sort of an expectation that produced disappointment for us. Great expectations lead to great disappointments for one reason. That's because the soul's greatest expectation is for Christ. Every other expectation will disappoint because we weren't meant to be satisfied with anything outside of the gospel that Christ brings us. So this series is going to look at greater expectations because here's the other thing I fear. Not only do we need to realize that our greatest expectation is Christ and the gospel and what it brings to us and where it takes us, but we need to stop settling for a merely great Expectation of the gospel. We need a greater expectation of the gospel. It's okay to set all of your hope and your anticipation on the gospel. And you can say it is my greatest expectation and not fear having the greatest disappointment because the gospel will not let us be put to shame. What did Paul say in Romans 1? I am not ashamed of the gospel. And in biblical language, that doesn't mean I'm not embarrassed of the gospel. It means the gospel won't let me down. It's like Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, and you, my God, I have trusted. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies triumph over me. In other words, that prayer is saying, all my hope and expectation of rescue is in you. Don't let me be put to shame. Don't let me be disappointed. All my, all my eggs are in your basket, Lord. And if you don't come through... I am disappointed. But but if we look at the gospel correctly, we should be able to put all of our expectation, all of our hope, all of our eggs in this basket, and we will not be put to shame. We will not be disappointed. In fact, we will find perhaps we don't have a great enough expectation for what God is doing in Christ through his people in his church. So I want to look at a greater expectation. So we're going to look in week one, that's tonight. We're going to look at a greater expectation for humanity. Because God did not create us the way that society talks about us. He created us with a capacity to actually become something more than we are now. We're going to look at a greater expectation for humanity. We're going to look at a greater expectation for the fall. The fall is not about God turning his back on us, but the fall is about him turning to heal us. We're going to look at a greater expectation for salvation. Salvation is not just I don't have to go to hell. Salvation is that we are given into a whole new way of life, and we need to raise our expectation of what it means to be saved. And lastly, we will see a greater expectation for our home, for heaven. There's a lot of really pathetic pictures of heaven and what's going to happen to us in eternity. Uh, Some as bad as naked cherubim playing harps on clouds that look like cotton candy, but you can't eat them, so it's even worse. (laughs) A kid thinking that, right? Um, Heaven is far more tremendous All of these are going to work together like chains in a link to show us that the gospel is this one great story and it's building upon from how God makes us to how God saves us to where God's bringing us in our future home. We have great expectations. We need greater expectations because we have the greatest expectation. Sorry, Charles Dickens, you can move aside because in Christ, we are completely satisfied with everything bit of our longing. So let's long more. Let's desire more. Let's expect more. Because in Christ, Paul says is yes and amen. You might as well say, so be it, Lord, because it's as good as done in his plan. All right, Charles Dickens, it's time for the Bible. So here we go. Uh, Genesis 1 is the story of how uh, of why God creates the world. We see this beautiful structured pattern. Even the language is stylized to be repetitious because it shows us that there's pattern, there's order. Um, God speaks. He's not manipulating. He's not forcing. He's not u- like you using his, like, if you don't, I will do this to you. Now, everything obeys him simply because he speaks. And then we get to this moment where in chapter 2, verse 1, after he sees that it's very good, we have the seventh day. And the seventh day is the only day that he consecrates. He makes it holy. This day is set apart from every other day. It's the last day of this entire creation event. Bless you. And um, and we see that he rests on this day. The biblical concept of rest is not the American concept of rest. I got a lot of rest this week. Got to, you know, watch some sports and lots of movies as as Brittany's family loves to break out the Hallmark movies after Thanksgiving. Uh, and uh, lots of that going on, right? That's not the biblical concept of rest. This concept of rest is when space is created in which nothing will interfere with that which God desires. And in this context, and in the whole Bible's context, God desires communion with every one of his creatures. And the Sabbath is a place of rest because the Sabbath is where this communion happens. So this is why he creates the world. He creates everything. To just really quickly summarize a lot of years of study and hours of description, he creates the world as a cosmic temple in which he makes this place a holy of holies for us to meet with him. This is what he created all things for. Why? Because he wants to share that with us. Why? Because before there was a creation, there was a triune God. Three in one, coexistent from all of eternity. There was never a point when any one of the three were not. And these three, from eternity past, without any beginning point, were forever exchanging perfect adoration, perfect love, perfect peace, perfect community with each other. So that in God is the epicenter of this completion of fulfillment and of love and joy and happiness and glory. This is what God is. And this was so good. That there's so much of God's abundance poured into himself and received from each member of himself that it has to overflow by nature. He's so good that he can't keep it. It overflows. What does it overflow to? He has to make something to receive the overflow of his goodness. That's how Jonathan Edwards puts it. That creation was made so that it can receive this abundant happiness of the Trinity. And then he makes us so that we could be pulled into the life and party of this triune God. This is why we're made. And then he creates the Sabbath so that there's this place to do this with him. Now, we have to get out of our minds the idea that the Sabbath is a time or a day. Yes, it's the seventh day of the creation week, but that's to show us that this is what it's all coming to. The Sabbath was not originally intended to be a date on the calendar, but a destination for the creature. That the Sabbath is what we are living for. Now, I know the Sabbath is the seventh day from this point on in the Bible, and the God says, every seventh day you shall, um, you shall rest and do no work. That's because when we fell, the Sabbath could, could no longer be an eternal existence. The Sabbath had to be relegated to this because everything else has fallen. So God in his grace gave us that day. But his design is that the Sabbath is a destination. This is how the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 likes to describe it. Um, he talks about the Sabbath rest of Israel. And he says, um, but Christ is our Sabbath. In Christ, we regain what Adam and Eve had this space, this, this destination of communion with the life of God. So remember, the Sabbath is a, is really, it's the goal of all things. Um, and Adam and Eve were put in this world. You and I were originally, if we had this going on long enough for me to be born into this, uh, we would have been living in that situation. Okay, so that's kind of what God does. That's what he makes. That's what we see in Genesis 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2. But now I want to zero in a little bit on us, humans, because we need a greater expectation for humanity. So let's look at Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, that's how every day of the creation started. And God said, but this is the second time he says, something in day six. First he makes the animals and now he says something again. And the reason he's doing this is because this is a different speech. He's not speaking to the creation. He's now speaking to beings that are with him. Is this the triune God? Is this a council of, of divine beings that help him rule the world? Your commentators will say all kinds of things. But God finds this moment so big. That he's not just doing this on his own. He's calling participation. All of heaven is part, it would seem. I'm just taking a guess. All of heaven is part of what he's about to do. So God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So much obviously can be said about this so-called image of God. He makes us in his image. So much has been written. Um, But I want to make this real simple by mostly focusing in on one aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. This is not the only way to look at it. It is, though, an important way, uh, and it's the one I want to highlight tonight. I think when we read that we're made in God's image, it includes the other things we read. To be made in the image of God includes to be in his likeness and to have dominion or rulership over creation. But I want to touch briefly on what we mean by those three things and then zero in on one of them. When we say that we are made in God's image, we need to understand how the Bible talks about the image of God. When you get to Colossians chapter one, verse 15, we read that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So now that we have a fuller revelation with Christ having come, we can look at Genesis and say, How should we understand being made in the image of God? If Christ is the image of God, what does that mean about humanity? It means that we share something inherently right there with Christ. And is it possible that rather than God making humans and then one day saying, well, golly, we got to save them. So Jesus, go down as a person. You got to take a body and we'll model it after the bodies I made for Adam and Eve. It, that's possible, or is it maybe more likely that God has always had a body in Christ? The manifestation, the physical form of God, that as God is walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, we see in chapter 3, uh, I don't remember what verse, I think verse 10, we see that He's that he walks in the garden, do they see him? Do they hear him? Can they engage with him? And if so, then how except through Christ? John himself tells us that no one has ever seen God except through Christ. He has made God known. If no one has ever seen God, then the only people who have seen anything of God were seeing Christ embodying God's revelation too say, an Old Testament prophet like Jeremiah or Samuel or Moses even. If if all of this is how we should understand it, then this is wild in that God did not make Christ's incarnated body after Adam and Eve. Rather, he makes Adam and Eve's body based on the enfleshed Son of God. So that when he makes us in his image, it means we are made like unto Christ's image. Which Adam and Eve would have shared something with. But then we fall. And we must regain that image, of course. Uh, that's that's perhaps what we can mean by we're made in his image. But now the other two parts which help flesh out what it means to be made in the image of God is... Um, notice it says that we... Uh, Are given dominion over the fish and the birds and every creeping thing and livestock. Um, He gave us rulership. But in our cockiness, humanity can think that, oh, he gave us rulership. We inherently have this power. God gave me power. So we can go and do whatever we want to his creation when actually what we will see in the story, which we're not really going to examine tonight. But if you read Genesis, you'll see uh, no Adam and Eve actually can't rule much in their own power. Their power is dependent upon and received from God as they commune and share life with him. God is the creator and the ruler. He gives us the ability to rule, but we must receive this and learn this from him. When we want to do things our way, things don't work out. And what we end up seeing throughout the Old Testament is that humanity does not rule over the creation very well at all. Actually, there are moments when the land and the creation itself seems to have more control over humans and kicks them out. There's a famine. We can't do anything about that. We gotta move. (laughs) The creation has more control over humanity than humanity has over the creation. Now, of course, technology has kind of manipulated some things, but step back and recall this from a spiritual perspective. When someone is given over to alcohol, they are not ruling creation, but creation is ruling over them. When someone's given over to sexual perversion... They are not ruling over sex. Sex is ruling over them. And sin is the reverse of God's making us in his image. We're no longer capable of ruling anything, but we are now mastered. And this is why in Romans 6, Paul talks about through baptism in Christ, we are given dominion over sin. Because sin has previously had dominion over us. And then third. So we're made in the image of God. We're made to rule his creation. But we're also made in the likeness of God. In the likeness now, I'm going on the authority of our earliest church writers, our church fathers, who as early as the first century or in the early years of the second century um, were saying that the likeness of God meant that we were to grow up, to look like God. So this is interesting to me. Um, it means that God has made us with a capacity to grow into something more than he made us as that if we're to become like God, either God makes us just like him and we have, we've reached the ceiling and Adam and Eve are sitting there in paradise going, cool. We've reached the highest existence. Now, what are we going to do? God's like, enjoy it. It's like, okay, we enjoyed it for eternity. Like, what are we going to do? Or to be made in God's likeness means that we're made with the capacity to grow more into his likeness. Well, that makes a little more sense. And here's why. How can a created being ever be completely like the creator? There's an infinite gap always and forever between creature and creator. And the creature may continue to grow in the likeness of the creator, but the creature will never reach the same parallel plane as the creator. There will always be a gap, and even when that creature looks infinitely more like the creator than it ever was, there is still an infinite gap between creature and creator, which means that to be made in likeness of God is a capacity to continually acquire likeness to God and never have it all. If that's the case, then when Adam and Eve are made, they are made not high and perfect, But they're made with humble origins, with every ability to grow and grow and grow and grow. And every step of growth is exciting for the creature. I've never been like this before. I've never been this close to my creator. I've never been able to understand this is the life of the Trinity. I feel more joy and happiness and completion. And every stage is more exhilarating. And there's no end to these stages for the creature. What would have been? This is what we mean, it seems, that we're made in his likeness. Frederica Matthews Green, the author of our Home Group um, book, but this is another book she wrote, she says it like this. um, That was God's plan from the beginning. He created us in his image so we could bear his glory just like the humble desert bush bore his fire He placed Adam and Eve in paradise, where in humility and obedience, they would be able to grow in oneness with him. So how does this happen? God sets up two trees. Hey, tree of life. You want to commune with me? Now, I'm totally making a leap at this point to say I imagine the Sabbath day as being a gathering, a rendezvous, and enjoyment of God under the tree of life. And from there, ruling the creation. And ruling the creation and bringing something back to God, saying, Look what we did. And God's like, Well done. And you eat from the tree again. It's this in and out movement of serving God's creation and bringing Him praise and this tree of life. And as this happens, you're sharing in Him and you're growing in Him. This is actually what the church has done for 2,000 years. We've established communion as the tree of life where we come to Christ and we eat from him. We bring him our praises and then we go out into the world and we try to bring his presence wherever we go in creation. And then we come back to him and we, we bring him praise from what he's done in our lives. And we eat with him and have communion and grow up to be like him. And we go back out. It's this in and out existence. Um, this dynamic progressive ability for humanity to grow is really important to me. That we have a nature that's dynamic, not a nature that's static. A static nature, you are what you are and you'll never be different. But a dynamic nature means that you're pliable, you're changeable. You can become formed, which is glorious and terribly horrendous at the same time. You can be transfigured or you could be disfigured. There's two ways that Genesis seems to indicate this. And the first, um, so we're going to look at two of these. The first comes from Genesis 2 verse 7. Genesis 2 verse 7, let's read it. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. On the face of it, it doesn't seem like much. But if you were to read this in the Hebrew, something would strike out at you as a creative play on words here. When you read that the Lord God formed the man, you would be reading Adam, where we get Adam. You'd be reading Adam, the man. Uh, He formed the Adam of the dust from the ground would be Adam-ah. One little extra syllable. So, what you're reading is you're seeing that God formed the man, he formed the Adam out of the Adama, the ground. So, the ground's here, the Adama's here, and God takes the Adama, and when he pulls it out, he makes an Adam. He makes a man out of the ground. Now, what's really interesting here is that through all of creation, God had merely spoken something into being. But when it came to humanity, He takes something out of something he's already made and he refashions what he already made into a higher and more glorified form. So that at the very beginning, humanity was not just brought into being through word, but was formed into being out of something lesser. We are, as humans, a transfiguration of dirt. Which says, from the beginning, God has given us a nature that can excel into higher levels of glory. So that when Christ comes on earth, he looks just like another Adam. But when they go to the Mount of Transfiguration, they get a glimpse of what the human being will become. The Transfiguration, they're being refigured, trans being a higher form of figuration. In Christ, they see what we will become as we continually follow and commune with him. Adam and Eve are transfigurations from the beginning. And it is our nature to be able to continually be transfigured in the hands of the creator. This is how we were made. It's what we're made to do. I want to share with you guys what... um, this tremendous lecture. I can share it with you if you want to know about it, but this is what it said. He says, God takes, I'm kind of, you'll hear a little bit of recap and some just better wording than I can say. God takes dust from the earth and forms it into the shape of man. This is the first time we encounter God creating by molding what he has already fashioned. Being so formed from what he has already, uh, being so formed from what has already been fashioned, his nature man's nature, is one of intrinsic transformation, where all other created things are immediately fashioned as they are, and barring evolution, remain that way, right, there is an immediate coming into existence of birds as birds and fish as fish, and birds stay birds and fish stay fish, according to our best observations. Um, But, but, Man's nature is very carefully defined in scripture from the outset as one of change, of transformation, or transfiguration of one thing into another. He is first dust and become, and dust becomes a living soul. Now, I'm not saying that humans evolve, okay? That's not what we're saying. Unless we're saying a divine evolution of in Christ, your human nature. Will start to share in and take part in the divine nature while remaining human. This is how the New Testament later explains it, especially 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Um, so that's our first example. How did God make us? He made us by making our nature transformational. Second way we see this is that it seems that we were created to grow in greater responsibilities. Created to grow in greater responsibility, meaning Adam and Eve were not given all the responsibilities right away. They were given little responsibility, and they were to grow into greater responsibility. Um, so when we read Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, we find that they are limited. Two verse 17. If you want to start in 16, you read, You may eat of the tree of every you may eat of every tree of the garden, but verse 17. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's an important phrase. Knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God says, don't eat from that tree. Are they to forever abstain from that tree? On the surface, you think, yeah, they should never because the tree is evil. Is the tree evil? It's just the knowledge of good and evil. Now, here's what's interesting. As we move forward in the text, we find, um, uh, if you, you can jot down 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, and we read this. This is Solomon's, um, when Sol- uh, yeah, Solomon's going to become king, God visits him, says, what do you want, Solomon? And what does Solomon ask for? As for wisdom, but listen to how he says it at one point. This is First Kings 3.9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. Adam and Eve are supposed to be governing authorities over creation. To govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people? The knowledge of good and evil is the knowledge that a ruler or an authority possesses in order to properly govern what's given to him. If I'm to properly rule, I have to know the difference between good and evil. Connor is bad. He did bad. We're going to punish Connor, but Molly is good. We're going to reward Molly. (laughs) Something (laughs) rudimentary example, something like that. Adam and Eve, however, had not grown into this responsibility yet. Are they going to, or were they going to? I would say yes, because not only does Solomon ask for that later, it just kind of shows us another way that this phrase is used, but we see this within Genesis itself. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. Three twenty-two, The Lord God said, this is after Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree; so they now have knowledge of good and evil. He said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Were we supposed to become like God? Absolutely. We already read that he made us in his likeness. However, it seems that they weren't ready to have all likeness of God. God has this knowledge of good and evil. We apparently are supposed to at some point, but it was too early. The serpent's temptation is to grasp for what will one day be theirs and to have it now. That's the great temptation that we all face in many ways on a day-to-day basis, grabbing what we want now. Would they have received this? Maybe. And this might explain why they realized they were naked after they sinned nakedness is not meant to people get really crazy with like well the first sin was that they knew each other um that's like augustine and some of the other like church fathers that were super paranoid of sex but um um nakedness likely shows us that they were innocent i mean when Addie was younger maybe a little bit still but when he was younger it was so fun to be naked wasn't it <laughs> not in front of everybody, not at least when you got to a certain age, but yeah, like I, I could tell you stories about my brother and I, and we're boys. So I don't know. but Yeah. We're just streaking through halls naked and just having a good time. Um, <laughs> um, because children, and that's acceptable to a child. Like we don't judge a child for running around enjoying themselves naked. But if I saw a grown human doing that, <laughs> you're right. We all have questions. <laughs> so, One of the things that this may indicate is that there's an innocence to Adam and Eve that they're still in their infancy of development. They realize they're naked because they now have more knowledge than they're meant to have. It's like when you give a teenager a smartphone. (laughs) I'm not not kidding. Like, that is more knowledge and access than that age should have. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to think through Growing and developing the way God wants us to. And Adam and Eve went too fast. Um, Now, because they have a nature that's dynamic and can grow into God's likeness and have more responsibility, we see that the reverse is dangerously also true. They chose to go against God's way and their dynamic nature changed, just not for the better. It changed for the worse. And so that leads me to closing with two implications that this concept of a dynamic nature leaves us with. We are to have a greater expectation for what it means to be human. And that means that we have a nature that grows and moves. You're not stuck. So if God created us with a dynamic nature, this means that we are not enslaved To static identities. Mm -hmm. We are not enslaved to static identities. Mm -hmm. And this is really huge in our current day and age. Mm -hmm. Everything about our lives. um, All of us. But especially for young people who are growing up into this world we created. um, But everything in our lives is tailored toward express yourself. Create your identity. And so... Uh, social media platforms and the way that we exercise freedom of speech, the way we use it now, it's all meant to, to be this vehicle to declare, this is who I am. See me. Approve of me. Like me. The problem with this is that now we have people that are getting to the point of, this is who I am. Don't challenge me. Don't say I might change or grow. So... We, uh, we see people that want to identify as one sex over the other or an attraction to one sex over the other. And we say, you shouldn't, that's not really the way it should be. And they're like, "Well, man, I was born this way. Okay. But that saying is declaring you have a static nature and no one can change the way I was born. Nor should anyone try. Because now that I've realized what my static nature is, I've reached my highest form. And for you to try to change that is to tear me down from my highest level of existence. The same thing goes with gender identification. The same thing can go in lesser forms of the way we try to practice our social posturing. I'm a Calvinist. (laughs) Um, You might be right now. But one day you'll grow up and, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you might change. You don't know. But see, one of the problems the church has with our divisiveness over doctrinal things is we don't, we, 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 we like to posture ourselves as this is what I am. Uh, this is what I'm into. This is who I am. And we don't realize that, you know what? I'm a dynamic creature and uh, I shouldn't lock myself that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one that we're in danger of too is that we've kind of caught onto the world's tendency to declare their static nature. And so we've kind of Christianized that. So what we do is we say, I was like that, but Jesus came in my life and now I'm like this. Mm-hmm. Wait, is everything that clean? Is there really a, I sinned this way, now I don't sin this way? Because <laughs> this is why we're being called hypocrites because that's our story. But this is not the reality of our story. The reality of our story is that I was this way. And yeah, there might've been a lot of help initially through the grace of God that I never had before, but I am still outgrowing these things. And if I, and if you are honest, we may be sinning this way a lot less, but you are still pulled to it, even if you don't do it. The dynamic nature of the human is that we are gradually becoming more like Christ and less like the sin the devil held us in. The Christian must be careful that we don't posture ourselves as static. Well, no, no. Jesus has saved me. I am saved. And that's it. So when somebody says, um, you seem a little bit too obsessed with yourself and not loving others enough. Whoa, dude, grace. I'm good. Like, I'm going to heaven. Okay, because apparently we don't understand then that the Bible wants us to continually grow in the likeness of Christ and never to settle for, I got my Willy Wonka golden ticket, I'm in. Mm -hmm. Um, No, no, we have a dynamic nature. And you may be saved, we're not going to question that. No one should be the judge of that. But if your nature is dynamic and you're just like smug with where you are, well, you're still going to change one way or the other. Mm. And unless we have the Christian disciplines and way of life drilled into us, we're going to pick up another pattern that's trying to drill its way into us. The world has its patterns and its ways and its modes of thinking, and one of these is getting into you and changing you. The Christian who's aware of this is the Christian who is leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else. We have a dynamic nature, and it must therefore be employed toward becoming more like Christ. Um, So we're saved from static identities. Our second implication is that since God created us with the potential to never stop becoming something. Stop and think about that for a minute. You are never going to stop becoming something. Right now you're becoming something. Um, When we've been there 10,000 years, you will never stop becoming something. (laughs) Because your nature isn't going to change. You're still a human with a dynamic nature. You just live in the Sabbath now forever and ever. We'll never stop becoming something. Okay, so that's great and that's terrifying. So Lewis warns us in mere Christianity, okay, you may feel like you never really need to get over your anger because you're saved, yay. but what if that anger never gets dealt with over a thousand years? What would you look like? What if it? What if it keeps going on its trajectory for a million years? How can you possibly say that that's a saint? That would look more like a demon. And so there's a sobering reality to this dynamic nature that every thought we have, every decision we make, every action we perform, every word we speak has eternal implications. That's not to say you mess up and now you're eternally never going to forget it. That's not what we're saying. It's that this is a baby step that could, if this baby step continues a million times, have eternal implications. And so... Um, we'll explain this more so this scares you just hang in there because we'll get to this in week three but there is a way that has been summarized what a dynamic nature leads us to is either one of divinization or one of demonization by divinization we don't mean you become a god but it means that you're becoming more like your god and demonization not that you become a demon but that you become more like a demon And you're here, like the Old Testament says it in its own way like this. Put before you are two paths. Mm -hmm. Choose life that you may live. Mm -hmm. Our psalm tonight was about two paths. Mm -hmm. One prospered like the tree in Eden and the other became like chaff and was blown away. We are eternally becoming something. Where are your actions, thoughts, words, and choices taking you? Now, Christ is merciful He gives us grace. The Holy Spirit is here to lead us. He will protect us from making tragic error. And if you don't listen to the Spirit speaking to your heart, hopefully you're part of a church that loves you enough to say, you really need to get your act together. Let's pray for you. Um, Because he's given us all kinds of measures to prevent us from becoming like the devil. But so this is how it changes my life. It's not, I know I'm holding a grudge against someone. But I, I ask God to forgive me, and he forgives me. And then we wash our hands and move on. Whoa, wait a minute. If I have a dynamic nature, though, that grudge is going to get really problematic within a few years' time. Like, think of that metastas- metastasizing. What's the right way to say that? Metastasizing. Thank you, our health experts over there. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, 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 that's sobering. And so this is not to say... All right, church, it's all about works. Get your works together. Um, It's not. It's about the grace of Christ. But what I've found is that my actions are choosing either to side with the grace of God or to side with whatever comes into my own head. So we have a choice to work with God or to work against God. And these have... Important implications as we go through this life. Let's close with this quote by C.S. Lewis. This is from um, um, The Weight of Glory. It's at the end. I never forgot this quote, and I think he says some of these things in such a way it'll just stick in your brain. Probably better if you're reading it, though, but you can hear it. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And again, he's saying this in the way of you become like God. So it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. So the potential is extraordinary saying. Then he says... There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with. Immortals whom we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us, for you are good and you love mankind. Amen.